Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. I used to teach seminary. One day, a student named Eric shared with the class what he called the parable of the bumblebee. Eric was riding his bike past a hive of bees. This made one of the bees mad, and the bee started chasing him. Eric rode his bike as fast as he could, but the bee kept following him. Eric got to his house, jumped off his bike, and ran towards the door, but he was too slow. The bee caught him and stung him. Then the bee died. What do you think is the message of this parable? Eric shared that story more than 20 years ago, and since then, I've taught thousands of classes, but I still remember his story. That's part of what makes parables remarkable. They're easy to remember. The word parable means to set beside or compare. It's a story from everyday experience that we can use to liken or compare to a truth or reality. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why the Savior taught in parables, so that we could remember them. They have multiple meanings, so we can apply them in different ways and continually learn from them. There is a lot to learn from the Savior's parables. I'll be honest, when I came home from my mission, I kind of felt like I was pretty much done with the parables because I'd gone on a mission, read the New Testament. I even went to seminary and read Jesus the Christ. I thought, what more can I learn? I've realized there's lots to learn. I recently came across the book Stories with Intent by Klein R. Snodgrass. This scholar has made studying the parables a key part of his life's work. He published a 900-page book showing how you can look at the parables through all sorts of angles that I had never even thought of. This class will focus on parables, but we could have an entire course just on parables. Today, we're only scratching the surface. I hope you like parables. If you don't, you probably won't like the Synoptic Gospels. Did you know that if you were to take the words that Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, parables would be about one-third of his teachings? The Synoptic Gospels share many of the same parables. Matthew has 10 unique parables, while Luke has 12. It's interesting to note that there are no parables in John. All of these numbers are approximate because what people count as a parable can differ, but it just gives you a rough idea. A few ground rules about parables before we begin. First, when it comes to interpreting parables, remember that it's a story, not a theological treatise, so don't push the parable too far. Second, remember that parables often have multiple interpretations. Third, although we have traditional titles for parables like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Jesus only named one of his parables, the parable of the sower. This is important because what we call a parable can influence how we think about it. Later today, we'll talk about the parable of the prodigal son. Calling it the parable of the prodigal son forces our attention on the younger son. But what if we called the parable the parable of the jealous son. Then we would focus our attention on the older brother. Or what if we called it the father of the two wayward sons, focusing our attention on the father? Or we could call it the compassionate father and his two lost sons. Whatever titles we use will influence how we interpret parables. We'll begin today with the parable of the sower. This is a unique parable because not only does Jesus name it, he also gives us an interpretation. We read, Listen, a sower went out to sow, And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil, 
and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Note that the parable begins and ends with a call to listen. When the disciples ask Christ for an explanation of this parable, he says, The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some an hundred. We can see this parable from many different angles. For example, imagine you are a teacher or a sibling or a ministering sister, and you're trying to help plant the word in somebody's heart, but it seems like they have stony ground. Maybe for you, the message from the parable is, I should work on cultivating the soil before I plant the seed. Another way we could read the parable is to think about ourselves as the different types of soil. I could ask myself, how's my soil doing? Am I part of the people that never really understand the word? Am I on the wayside? Or perhaps there are some parts of me that are good soil, but other sections are a little rocky. Where do I need to more fully cultivate my soil? Notice too that all the groups hear the word, but the unique thing about the good ground is they not only hear the word, they receive it and then do something with it. They produce fruit. What is meant by the word in this parable? It says, the sower soweth the word. One possible meaning is that it represents the teachings of Jesus or the gospel. Another possibility is that it refers to the Savior himself. The Greek word translated as word in this parable is the same one used in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the Book of Mormon, Alma gives a sermon where he discusses the word and seeds like we see in the parable of the sower. He says we will compare the word unto a seed. Note that Alma doesn't say faith is like a seed. He says he will compare the word to a seed. He also says nourish the word. Alma seems to have something specific in mind when he says the word. At the end of this discourse to the Zoramites, Alma says, Begin to believe in the Son of God that he will come to redeem his people, and that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins, and that he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection. I desire that ye shall plant this word in your hearts. So the word that Alma was talking about is Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. That's what he wants us to plant. As we ponder this parable, there are lots of applications we could ask ourselves. What can I do today to hear the word, to receive the word or the Savior's atoning sacrifice, to do something with the word? For example, could we find opportunities, perhaps while getting ready in the morning or while waiting in line, to hear more of the Savior's words? Are there ways we could more fully receive Christ's atoning sacrifice and act on it? Let's turn to the parables in Luke chapter 15. As with all parables, knowing the context is important. We read, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the context of the three parables in Luke 15 is that the Pharisees are judging Jesus for eating with sinners. 
Before we judge the Pharisees for judging, let's remember that there's some rationale for their approach. Proverbs 4.14 says, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. If we think back to fence laws, if a core law is don't follow the path of the wicked, maybe I want to build a fence of don't hang out with the wicked to protect myself. Because if I start hanging out with the wicked, maybe I'll become the wicked. So there could be some good reasons for what the Pharisees are saying, but they're missing the mark. Jesus shows this in three parables. The first is the parable of the lost sheep, which, if you remember, involves the 99 sheep and the missing one. So there's a total of 100 sheep. Then the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the lost sheep, we read, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. We can learn several great lessons from this parable. I want to highlight two. The first is, how do you even notice if you're missing one sheep? If you're a shepherd and you've got your hundred sheep grazing, can you visually tell the difference between a hundred sheep and 99? I think that'd be really hard. So for me, this parable shows the importance of figuring out who's missing, and that takes effort. If you're a ministering brother, a Sunday school teacher, a secretary in an organization, or serving in pretty much any calling, do you and I notice when someone isn't there? It's hard to be the good shepherd and seek after the sheep if we don't even know somebody is missing. Consider these words from Elder Clayton M. Christensen. He said, In every sacrament meeting, Our clerks count the number of sheep who return to the fold. They store this number in a safe place for the quarterly report, and then we go home. If we conformed our ways to God's ways, we would list the names of the individual members who could have returned to the fold on that Sunday, but didn't come. Then we'd go find them. In a district in France, at the end of Sunday meetings, the branch councils and missionaries together named the members and investigators who could have been there, but didn't come. They each took an assignment to contact one of those individuals that same day with this message. We sure missed you today. Are you okay? It's not the same for us when you can't come. Can I help? Can you come next Sunday? Within two years, sacrament meeting attendance in this district increased from 540 to 725 in a region where convert baptisms are infrequent. Elder Christensen concludes, We should be careful not to offend members who deliberately do not want to attend but helping each member who only occasionally returns to the fold on Sunday to feel needed and feel our love is a simple practice that every ward and branch can begin. Many less active members got that way because they didn't return to the fold one Sunday and nobody seemed to notice. How could you and I apply this aspect of the parable of the lost sheep? A related lesson from this parable concerns the effort we make to reach out to others. I'm guessing the shepherd in this parable made a significant effort to rescue the lost sheep. Do you and I do the same? I love what Elder Mervyn B. Arnold described. He said, Brother Jose de Sosa Marquez was the type of leader who truly understood the principle taught by the Savior. And if any of you be strong in spirit, let him take with him him that is weak, that he may be edified in all meekness, that he may become strong also. As a member of the branch presidency in Fortaleza, Brazil, Brother Marquez with the other priesthood leaders developed a plan to reactivate those who were less active in his branch. One of those who was less active was a young man by the name of Fernando Ararusho. Recently, I spoke to Fernando, and he told me of his experience. I became involved in surfing competitions on Sunday mornings and stopped going to my church meetings. One Sunday morning, Brother Marquez knocked on my door and asked my non-member mother if he could talk to me. When she told him I was sleeping, he asked permission to wake me. He said to me, Fernando, you are late for church. 
not listening to my excuses, he took me to church. The next Sunday, the same thing happened. So on the third Sunday, I decided to leave early to avoid him. As I opened the gate, I found him sitting on his car, reading the scriptures. When he saw me, he said, good, you are up early. Today we will go and find another young man. I appealed to my agency, but he said, we can talk about that later. After eight Sundays, I could not get rid of him, so I decided to sleep at a friend's house. I was at the beach the next morning when I saw a man dressed in a suit and tie walking towards me. When I saw that it was Brother Marquis, I ran into the water. All of a sudden, I felt someone's hand on my shoulder. It was Brother Marquis in water up to his chest. He took me by the hand and said, You are late. Let's go. When I argued that I didn't have any clothes to wear, he replied, They are in the car. That day, as we walked out of the ocean, I was touched by Brother Marcus's sincere love and worry for me. He truly understood the Savior's words, I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. The boy who was playing hooky went on to serve in many church callings and helped build God's kingdom because someone went the extra mile to reach out to him. I get the feeling that if Brother Marcus had just texted the boy and said, hey, I missed you at church, it wouldn't have been enough. Obviously, we need to be careful and sensitive in our outreach to others. Sometimes we do need to go the extra mile, and sometimes we need to give a person some space. The Holy Ghost will help us know what to do in each individual situation. Versions of this parable are in both Matthew and Luke, and the endings are slightly different in each. In Matthew, Jesus says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think this is so important. Maybe you're trying to reach out to someone and they're ghosting you, or you just feel like your efforts aren't being successful. Remember Jesus saying to you, Heavenly Father, and I don't want any one of these little ones to perish. Thank you for your efforts to help them. And then you continue to minister and never give up. The ending in Luke is a little different. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this parable and kind of felt disappointed, like, I'm one of the 99 sheep. Doesn't heaven rejoice over me? Should I go sin so there's some rejoicing? Or we read about the parable with the woman who loses one of her 10 pieces of silver, searches diligently, and then rejoices when she finds the lost coin. At the end of this parable, Jesus says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. If you've ever felt slighted by these parables, I've got good news for you. We are all sinners. Sometimes we're the 99, but often we're the one. We all stray from God, and there is a lot of joy in heaven over you and me, so we don't need to worry that heaven isn't rejoicing over us. If I do have the attitude of, I'm the best sheep ever, then there's a parable in this chapter especially for me. It's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son, and it's the longest of all the Savior's parables. Christ says, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Did you notice how the younger son gathered all together? Most college students leave stuff at home because they know they're coming back. This younger son apparently is planning on a one-way trip. Jesus continues, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Because pigs were unclean animals, feeding swine would have been one of the lowest professions a person could possibly have. 
This son is at rock bottom. But he came to himself. He returned to his father, and as he did so, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Notice that the father saw his returning son while the son was still off in the distance. Do you think the father was looking for him? Also note the detail that the father ran to his son, even though in that culture it was not considered appropriate for older men to run. The father welcomes his son, gives him new clothes, and kills the fatted calf so that they can have a great party. The older son, who's been working in the field, comes back to the house and hears the music and dancing. When he finds out that it's a celebration for his younger brother, he's angry. Let's examine the conversation between the father and the older brother. Remember, Jesus begins the parable with, a certain man had two sons. In verse 28, the older son would not go in to the party. Instead, his father came out. The older son says, you never gave me a goat. The father says, you are always with me. Notice how the older son frames his relationship with his brother in verse 30. As soon as this, thy son, was come, kind of separating him. Have you ever done that? Like, if you're mad at one of your children, you say to your spouse, well, your child is really struggling. That's kind of like what the older brother is doing here. In contrast, the father says, your brother was dead and is alive again. The older son is angry, but the father says, we should rejoice. Both brothers struggle with sin. One of the challenges for the older brother is that his is less obvious. The younger brother knows he's in the wrong, but the older brother thinks he's in the right. That can make things challenging for those of us who have a little bit of the older brother syndrome. What happens in verse 33? Actually, there is no verse 33. You and I have to supply it. Verse 32 ends on an abrupt note. The father said, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. I wonder what happens next. Does our hypothetical verse 33 say, And it came to pass the brother was angry and stomped away filled with wrath. Or is it, and it came to pass, the brother softened his heart. He said, Father, you're right. He went in and embraced his younger brother. We don't know. It reminds me of an earlier class when we ended Mark 16 with the women in the tomb. We had to ask ourselves, are we going to go out and share the message or will we be afraid? Here we ask ourselves, will I be a judgmental older brother and not forgive? Or am I going to go embrace my brother? You and I are left to finish the story in our own lives. We can see ourselves in the parable in many ways. Perhaps sometimes we are the prodigal son. We need to come to ourselves and repent. Maybe at times we're the prideful older son needing to rejoice in others' good choices. This, by the way, seems to be an important point of the Savior's parable. If we go to the context of Luke 15, the Pharisees were grumbling because Jesus was eating with sinners. The older son's behavior most closely matches the original context of the parables as the older brother grumbles because his father's rejoicing with his younger brother, who he sees as a sinner. Perhaps in this parable, we're sometimes like the Father. We're waiting, we're hoping, we're willing to forgive, we're eager for a loved one to return. Maybe we don't spend enough time thinking about the Father's painful journey. How did He feel every day waiting for His Son to return? Sometimes we're that Father, sitting for longer than we want, waiting for someone to return. Take a moment to consider these three parables from Luke 15. What relevance do you see in your life today? Let's turn to the parable of the unforgiving servant. A few verses before this parable begins, there's a question about what to do if somebody at church offends you. Then Peter asks, if someone trespasses against me, how many times do I need to forgive them? It's in the context of being offended by someone at church and forgiving others that Christ gives this parable. Let's approximate how much money we're going to be talking about in the parable. 
The King James Version refers to pennies and talents, and those aren't monetary units we're familiar with. The word we have as a penny was a denarius. That's one day's wages for a common laborer. For round numbers, let's assume that today a minimum wage for a day's work is $100. One talent equaled 6,000 pennies. That means a talent would be $600,000 or 25 years worth of wages. With those two figures in mind, we can better approximate the different amounts discussed in this parable. The first servant owes his master 10,000 talents. That would be 164,000 years worth of wages, or $6 billion. A second servant owes the first 100 pence, which would be 100 days wages, about $10,000. That's still a substantial amount of money, but nothing in comparison to what the first servant owes. Jesus begins the parable saying, When the king began to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. If you're a first century listener, you already know this is crazy. If a story begins with, someone owed another person $6 billion, you know there's no possible way they're going to be able to repay that. But the servant fell down and said, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And the master is merciful. The entire debt is forgiven. And then this first servant encounters the second servant who owes him the equivalent of $10,000 and says, give me what you owe me. Notice how the second servant does exactly what the first one did. He falls down at the first servant's feet and says the exact same phrase, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. But the first servant doesn't forgive. He casts the second servant into prison. When the king hears about this, he says to the first servant, oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt. Shouldst thou not have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Christ concludes the parable saying, his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. The message of this parable is obvious. We must forgive. A key to driving this parable into our hearts is to ask ourselves, if I were really forgiven $6 billion, would I forgive someone else 10000 Now those numbers are so astronomical that maybe we could change it slightly. Imagine that your wealthy friend gives you a Tesla. You're so excited. As you're driving home, you find two candy bars in the glove compartment. When you get back to the house, your roommate or your spouse says to you, hey, could I have one of your two candy bars? If someone had just given you a Tesla, would you be able to find it in your heart to give a candy bar to someone else? In other words, in this parable, we're the first servant. Jesus is forgiving us, in essence, $6 billion worth of sin. So can we turn around and forgive someone who owes us $10,000 worth of sin? I love how Christian leaders Timothy and Kathy Keller framed this idea. They refer to Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And write, if you see Jesus dying on the cross for others, forgiving the people who killed him, that can be just a crushing example of forgiving love that you will never be able to live up to. But if instead you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, forgiving you, putting away your sin, that changes everything. The joy and freedom that comes from knowing that the Son of God did that for you enables you to do the same for others. We might encounter some really challenging circumstances when it's almost impossible to forgive, where it feels like another person owes us a $10 billion debt. Remember what Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught. Jesus did not say you are not allowed to feel true pain or real sorrow from the shattering experiences you have had at the hand of another. Nor did he say in order to forgive fully, you have to re-enter a toxic relationship or return to an abusive, destructive circumstance. But notwithstanding even the most terrible offenses that might come to us, we can rise above our pain only when we put our feet onto the path of true healing. 
That path is the forgiving one walked by Jesus of Nazareth, who calls out to each of us, come, follow me. Let's go to the parable of the Good Samaritan. This might be the most famous of all the Savior's parables. You know the background. In Luke 10, we read, A scholar of religion stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus answered, What's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said that you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer, said Jesus. Do it, and you'll live. Notice that up front, Jesus is emphasizing, do it. Looking for a loophole, the scholar asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus then gave the following parable. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. We might criticize the priest and Levite for passing by, but the ancient road between Jerusalem and Jericho was dangerous. So maybe there's some justification. What if robbers are still in the area? But potential danger didn't matter to the Samaritan who saw a person in need. And it's the Samaritan the Savior highlights. Remember from our previous class that there were centuries of enmity between Jews and Samaritans. The parable continues. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. After recounting this parable, Christ said to the religious scholar, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him? which fell among the thieves. And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Notice how both at the beginning and the end of this parable, Christ emphasizes doing. It's good to know the two great commandments. It's good to know the parable of the Good Samaritan, but Christ really wants us to do something about it. There are many applications of this parable. I love this commentary from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over at that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt the man on the ground was merely faking in order to lure them there for a quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's a powerful question for us to consider. It's not very likely that we'll come across a wounded individual in the coming days or weeks, but we may find someone that we have a little bit of enmity with, that we could cheer up with a kind word or a smile. Take a moment and think, how could you apply this parable? Let's conclude with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The background for this parable is the story of the rich young ruler who won't leave his riches behind. After the rich man leaves, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, you will have a great reward, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Then Jesus gives the parable of the laborers and concludes it by again saying that the last will be first and the first will be last. It's almost like Peter's wondering, I'm working really hard to build your kingdom. What am I going to get? And Jesus says, you're going to get a lot of good stuff, but it might not turn out exactly the way you think. This parable reminds us that God doesn't use our metrics for giving rewards that are fair. 
And this parable is especially relevant for those who think they're better than others or deserve more than others do. In essence, this parable asks us, how can you build God's kingdom if you're focused on getting and comparing? Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he came out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Why do you think the owner of the vineyard started paying first those who had been hired last? As we'll see, this is going to cause problems. Did he want the first workers to see the wage that was given to the last workers? Jesus continues, When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? We can sense the injustice felt by those who labored all day. Why should somebody who worked for just one hour receive the same payment they got? Of course, there's also the point, how do you feel if you're the laborer that nobody has hired? It's 4.45 p.m. You're going to have to go home and tell your family there's no food today. Wouldn't you rather be the person working all day knowing that at least you'll be able to feed your family? I recently read Hank Smith's book, Living the Parables, where he talks about a conversation he had with a friend. Hank said, what if you find out in the next life that everybody gets the celestial kingdom? No matter what, everyone gets the exact same reward. How would you feel? For the record, Hank said, I don't think this is true. I'm just asking a hypothetical question. Hank's friend said, I would be really upset. Why? Hank's friend said, because I've worked hard and sacrificed a lot to get there. Hank said, you've worked hard and sacrificed a lot, and you got the reward you were planning on. So what's wrong? Yes, but it would still bother me. Why do you think Hank's friend would still be bothered? When we put it like that, it sounds kind of harsh, but do we ever feel the same way? Perhaps there are some of us who have been laboring all day in the kingdom. We might feel frustrated if someone gets what we perceive to be too many blessings when they haven't been working very hard. Jesus doesn't want us to focus on what some of the others are getting. He wants us to focus on building his kingdom, not comparing what different laborers in the kingdom are receiving. Elder Holland highlighted one lesson from this parable saying, We are not diminished when someone else is added upon. We are not in a race against each other to see who is the wealthiest or the most talented or the most beautiful or even the most blessed. The race we are really in is the race against sin. So be kind and be grateful that God is kind. It's a happy way to live. I started today with a parable. Let me end with what I'll call the parable of the escalator. There once was a man who wanted to walk up the down escalator. He found that if he stopped moving, he went down. If he walked at a certain pace, he could hold his place on the escalator. But in order to get to the top, he had to quicken his pace. I think we can liken mortality to walking up a down escalator. 
Because we live in a fallen world, we face a constant downward pull, and it takes real effort to make progress. President Henry B. Eyring said, As the forces around us increase in intensity, whatever spiritual strength was once sufficient will not be enough. And whatever growth and spiritual strength we once thought possible, greater growth will be made available to us. Both the need for spiritual strength and the opportunity to acquire it will increase at rates which we underestimate at our peril. Yes, the downward speed of the escalator is increasing. And so metaphorically speaking, we have to walk faster and faster, spiritually speaking, to keep up. But the good news is that today we have many more ways to invite the light of Christ into our lives than were available even just a few years ago. I hope that in this class you've seen some personal lessons from Christ's parables that could help you continue your journey up the down escalator. It might not be doing more of something, but just doing things differently. For example, how could we hear, receive, or do something with the Word? Is there someone in our stewardship that we could be looking for? If someone comes back to the fold, will we rejoice with them? Am I forgiving others? How can I be like the Good Samaritan today? How can I focus less on getting my share and more on rejoicing in God's mercy? Sometime in the next 48 hours or so, you and I might be in a challenging situation. I hope so if we'll say, oh, this is just like that parable. And then we'll go and do likewise. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.